Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to episode three of Coffee with the Commissioner. I am here today with Barney Green at the studio in Flock in Middlesbrough. Um, and Barney, for those that don't know, is a surgeon at South East Hospital, and we will get more into the detail of that. But thank you very much for coming along today, Barney. That's a pleasure, and thanks for the coffee. It's very nice indeed. It's great coffee. Yeah, yeah. Can't fault it. So, Barney, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do now? Yeah, sure. Okay. As you say, my name's Barney. It's not my real name. It's actually my kind of a, um, adopted name because my official name is Barnabas. Now, that's a Sunday name, so... <clears throat> I think if you call me that today, I know that I'm in trouble. Um, yes, as you say, I'm a surgeon at James Cook. I'm actually what's called a vascular surgeon. So my specialty really is dealing with blood vessels, blood vessels that block or blood vessels that burst. Um, and that really involves around operations to take tubes and sew them into legs and arms and so on and so forth and, and give somebody a new blood supply back. Okay. And how long have you done that for? Well, I've been a consultant at James Cook now for 10 years, but um, I started my Love Affair with South Tees back in, I think, about 2006. So I've right. been around the area for a bit of time. Now, obviously, that's that's not a Teesside accent. So where, no. where, where, are you, where did you grow up originally then? Well, you won't believe I was born in Leeds, but I was okay. born in Leeds. Um, I have no memory of that place at all. Uh, when I was just maybe two and a half years old, my parents, um, who worked for a mission organisation, uh, moved out to a country called Zaire. Now, it's long since changed its name. So, so let me get right. Your parents were missionaries. That's right, that yeah. Saying? My okay. father was um, a paediatrician, so he, you know, a kid's doctor. My mother was a teacher. And when they were in their early 30s, they said, you know what, I think we can take our skills uh, and use those overseas for, for people who are not so fortunate and, you know, try and develop medical programs and teaching uh, overseas. So my brother and I had no choice. We went with them. Um, and, uh, yeah, you'll remember Zaire, I guess, from the boxing, you know, the rumble in the jungle. The in the jungle that's yeah. right, yeah. So uh, Kinshasa, the capital city. So I, I moved out to Zaire um, and had what I would describe just like the best childhood one could ever imagine. Um, the it first... sounds very jungle, but I've got visions of Mowgli and everybody running around. And... Well, it was. And when I eventually came back to England, my, my nickname by my cruel friends was Mowgli. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so the first couple of years, we were right in the equatorial rainforest. I mean, if you imagine the, the horizon was up there because that's where the trees were. And there was just this little hole cut in the middle of the jungle. You'd fly in a little light aircraft for a couple of hours over what looked like broccoli. And there was loads of turbulence. And then you just drop down. The pilot would have to buzz the land strip a couple of times because invariably there was, you know, wild animals in 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 the uh, in the landing strip, which was just mud. Yeah. Um, uh, the house was made of mud brick, had termites in the walls, so at night you'd hear them banging their heads off the wall. Tin roofs, so when it rained, you just couldn't hear anyone talk. No electricity, running water, not particularly. You had to collect it all. Um, but it was a free childhood. You know, we'd go off and play in the jungle, catch animals, and you know, make bows and arrows with sticks. Yeah. We wore shorts, that was it. You know, it was too hot to wear anything else. And how um, long were you there for then? Um, I came back to England when I was a teenager because somebody said, hey, you need an education. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, my brother and I both lived away from home. So although, although we were there as a family, there weren't really any schools nearby. Uh, my mum tried to teach us for a couple of years. We were too much of a handful. So we got sent off to the capital city. Um, we lived in, uh, I'm going I'm to say what we lived in and then I try and explain it. We lived in a hostel. Yeah. Uh, now, maybe a hostel in this country has a slightly different connotation, but it was effectively a, a big care home for lots of kids who went to that school whose parents lived up country or in the jungle. And there were a couple of hostel parents who 
were probably in their late 20s, early 30s, whose life we made a misery. Um, and they looked after us, took us to school and, uh, you know, broke us up from having fights and all that kind of stuff. Right. But uh, I went to an American school for my first part of my education. I learned to touch type on the computer, which serves me well in my, <laughs> in my job now. Um, and then when I was a teenager, it was a decision. Carry on in the American system and go to America or, or come back to England and you know try and get in on the old GCSE stuff. So maybe 150 years ago, there was uh, um, the mission organization that the parents worked for had, had realized that you know people would work overseas for 20 years at a time. Um, we had to cater for their kids. So they set up two schools in the southeast of London, um, a, a boys' school and a girls', girls school. And although it long since lost its kind of missionary connection, my brother and I got uh, slightly cheaper places to go. And uh, that's how I ended up getting a bit of a London accent, I suppose. Right. Okay. And then on the university and into medicine, what, what made you get into medicine? Uh, truthfully, um, well, growing up in Zaire, uh, when you go back to see my parents on the holidays, my father, he was sort of the only qualified doctor for an area the size of Wales. So he had a lot of responsibility in terms of public health medicine, not just, you know, looking after the kids. Oh, he was the vet as well, you know, just did anything that you needed to do. But um, on these village trips uh, into little outposts, I used to love going with him really for three reasons. One, I'd get to ride on a motorbike and I just, you know, I love motorbikes. Um, two, I'd get to eat the local food, which is just fantastic to me. And, and thirdly, <laughs> you quite often get to see some really weird and gory stuff because disease presentation in the jungle as you might imagine, is usually quite late. So I think that gave me a morbid fascination of, of disease. Um, I've always loved taking things apart, putting them back together again and realizing there's a bit left over. And, you know, we still do that. Uh, That's you know. not a great mission for a surgeon. <laughs> um, and, then, and then when I got to school, you know, what was I good at? I was rubbish at history and geography and all those kind of arty things. Um, and I think all of us boys loved geography because Miss Burgess... Well, she was just fresh out of teaching school. She had long blonde hair and longer legs. And, you know, we all did biology. So that's probably how I uh, got pushed towards medicine. Yeah. Um, truth is, I didn't really want to do medicine. Uh, I went to university. Uh, I took a year out before going to university and I worked in Paris. And, and I think one of my favorite films uh, has got Sandra Bullock in it and Morgan Freeman. And somewhere in the film, Morgan Freeman says, look, you're born with a gift. If not, you get good at something along the way. And I think if you don't do what you're gifted at doing, you know, you get to this point in life and you go, you know, what's it all about? And I did a lot of deep soul searching, thinking, you know, what are my gifts? What am I good at? And I, I thought that youth work was my way forward, yeah. you know, communication, being involved with young people. And so I went to university with an ulterior motive, and that was just to meet folk and understand what life was all about and, you know, how things ticked. And it wasn't really to do medicine. But that became a bit of a means to an end and maybe a story for another day. Um, and it sort of became what you were good at. Yeah, you, I guess so. I guess so. We, we've chatted about this before. You, you're not your stereotypical surgeon to talk to. Um, and, and we've chatted a few times now. And, and the way you put things across is, is very easy to listen to and very easy to understand. And, and one thing that you said once before stuck with me. And it was a case of we were talking about young people and, and knife crime. And I know we'll touch on that a bit more later. But... But you said something along the lines of, well, actually, rather than use a knife for bad, come along and I'll teach you to use a scalpel for good or some, mm. something along those lines. Mm. Is that a bit of an ethos of yours then? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, maybe we might, might talk about why I do what I do at some point or, you know, if, if that was your question. Um, 
if I if I'm honest and I and I say, you know, what what is life all about for me? A lot of people say that they're in a particular area because that's where their job took them. And I, I, I'm the other way around. You know, I, I became a vascular surgeon to be in Middlesbrough. So it's, it's, it's being the vascular surgeon that holds me here. So my attraction was to this place. It to wasn't place. to the job. And, and what that, is it about Middlesbrough and vascular surgery then? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, back when I was doing my, my medical training, I, I needed to move out of Newcastle, which is where I went to university. And there were a series of, of connections, very deep connections for me. Um, and, and honestly, I, I had I'd heard of the football team, <laughs> but I, I didn't know anything else about the area. I, I couldn't have, you know, described the industry and the beauty yeah. of it and all that stuff. But I knew that was a really good guy coming to live in Stockton. And I wanted to be part of what he was involved with. And, and, and so who was that then? There was a guy called Roger Martin. He was actually, um, he, he's died now. He was a, a lovely chap, but he ran, he was a, a Baptist minister of a church in Stockton. But when I heard that he was moving from Leon C in Essex up to Middlesbrough, I thought, you know what? This is, there was a connection and there was a draw and it was something that's very difficult to explain, but a very profound calling, if you like, to this area. So when I got told at multiple review boards in my education and my, my surgical training that you're not going to get the job you want. You're not even going to get a job in this region. You might even get a job in the country, I was told. Um, and uh, I was pushed all this kind of propaganda really about working up in Newcastle and, and you know, various hospitals up there. But for me, it was all about here. Um, and so I, I was confident that I would be part of the fabric of, of our area here. Okay. And I'm pleased so, this worked out. Good. So you, you moved to Middlesbrough and I'm glad you did. <laughs> right. Thank you. So it's a wonderful place to live. Um, your role as a vascular surgeon, so I suppose the first thing that springs to mind is, is hearts and and things like that and blood pumping round, but a lot of your work isn't day-to-day, is it? You, th- you do a, a, a lot of really quite traumatic work and quite emergency work, don't you? Yeah, so um, we, we're a group of seven, and within that we have to provide a full vascular service for our area and our out. out post area. So we, we cover a population of about 1.2 million uh, people. Um, and of course, people fall off things, crash their cars, get involved in, in violence and end up coming through the doors of the major trauma center, which is which is James Cook. Statistically speaking, if we looked at our A&E data over the last couple of years, it looks like every three days somebody's coming into A&E having been assaulted with a knife. Now, I grant not all of those will be ending up on the operating table. Yeah. And, and, thankfully, they're all, and they're not all violent crimes. No, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, but, and, and thankfully, a large number of those are, you know, simple cuts that can be, can be sorted out. The trauma of that experience, well, that's a different story. But the seriously injured people that come our way, you know, that's a big problem. So we, we, we've got to, now that we know that that's there, we've got to say, well, how can we go around uh, trying to help to reduce yeah. that problem? How can we eliminate it, of course? And, and we know statistically... Cleveland has one of the highest knife crime rates in the country. Um, and obviously my office was recently successful in, in securing mm-hmm. violence reduction unit funding. Um, and you were instrumental in that with, with some of the statistics you were able to provide. And one of the things that really stuck me with that is, is the cost of a serious knife injury. So we accept the fact that somebody comes in, they're going to go into surgery. But do you want to talk us through the, that whole process and and the time, I know we've chatted on this before, the times and the cost involved yeah. from a from what on the surface of it is is a, a stab injury. Well, ball, ballpark figures, uh, you know, is, is what we can look at. And 
I think there will be some costs that we, we can't account for. But let's start from the roadside. If you have to have the air ambulance come, there is a huge amount of money. Every time that helicopter goes up, that's you know, thousands of pounds. That, that won't ever come back to the hospital. You understand that's charity-based and, and yeah. that's really good. But there's a big cost there. The cost of the paramedics' time and their expertise to bring uh, you know, an injured person to the hospital. Once you're in the hospital, if you come in as a major trauma, you will have representatives from every single specialty that's required. So that might be orthopedics, general surgery, vascular surgery, anesthetics, intensive care, accident and emergency. There will be loads of nursing staff from A&E principally um, and, you know, porters, uh, scribes, you know, everyone who says, right, we've got to stop what we're doing. Stop tending to these other people and come and be part of this you know, resuscitative team. From there, you're then going to go through radiology, so maybe a CT scan. That's a cost. That's a, a, an extra resource. And then from there to the operating theater. Theaters are, are very expensive to run. Um, I probably don't need to explain why. Um, and then if you then go on to a simple ward bed, you know, you're looking at 300 pounds a night. You would expect really nice digs, wouldn't you, for 300 quid a <laughs> night? Um, so, you know, that's your basic ward bed. And as you ramp it up through the level two and, and you know, ITU stays, they're very expensive. So we estimate the cost of a seriously injured person who then has to come in and spend a theater and an, and a, an ITU stay somewhere in the region of 20,000 pounds. Wow. And how do you put a price on psychological damage? How, how do you evaluate that going forward? You know, what if that person is too scared to go out? What if they're too scared to engage with other people and, and they can't get a job, lose the job that they had and, and all those additional costs? So these... And that's assuming that there isn't a, a major life-changing injury. And what was it all about? I mean, I, I don't know the details of that, but it could be as something as simple as, you know, you, you just said the wrong thing or, you know, you came to the wrong part of town or whatever it might be. You know, So it's something really has got to change. And on that, so we've... Um, We've done some work together. I've, I've seen you do some work with MFC Kicks um, and showed groups of young people some pretty horrific pictures. Um, what, what do you think? What do you think the benefits of that impact are on our young people? I, there's some really good research that says trying to shock people into change doesn't work, and I get that. Um, and, and I think the last thing we want to try and do is go and and almost glorify these horrible things because people get the wrong idea of that and it's just a bit of a bit of a thing to look at but at the same time it is important that we understand what the ramifications of our actions actually are i would go to, so far as to say there is not a single part of the body that is safe to put a knife into in fact there's probably not a single part of the body that you can get away punching either or hitting with a stick you know these these things are they can be lethal but in order to try and explain how bad <laughs> knife injuries can be, it is sometimes important to show these images and, yeah. and get people to understand that. What I really, really want to do in the context of, of education is say, in the hospital, this is the type of injury we have to deal with. Here's some pictures of what it looks like. These are because people made bad decisions in life. Yeah. And I want to be able to say there is a way forwards it involves you making good decisions, responsible decisions. You don't have to be a part of this. In fact, you don't have to be a, a, a victim of this either. Uh, do something different. And and I think I would love people all to say, I, I want to be a surgeon. And I would, you know, come knock on my door and, yeah. and we'll teach you. But I want you to be a good dad, a good mum, 
and carpenter, plumber, policeman, whatever you want to be, just as long as you're making good decisions in life that you know that don't end people up in hospital. And you're the gent that first introduced me to MAV, mm-hmm. um, which I, I'll let you explain what that is. And th- there's a whole ethos behind that, isn't there? So, so do you just want to touch on, on what MAV is and what that ethos is? MAV uh, is it stands for Medics Against Violence, and and you know this is a, a brilliant organisation up in Glasgow. Um, this was set up by a, a couple of, of doctors who went, all we do on Friday night is put jaws back together, deal with head injuries. You know, this isn't good. Something has to change. And back in the early days of violence reduction units with the, the, the Scottish government, the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit, they, they partnered together and said, look, how can we how can we break this cycle of violence? I think their strap line is violence isn't inevitable. It's completely avoidable, you know, but we've got to give people those options and those opportunities to move away so breaking that circle of violence in very much a non-judgmental way this isn't coming in saying you know you you deserve or you don't deserve or whatever it might be it just says i don't really care about your background i don't care how you've got into it what i do care about is healthily moving forwards so they have um, a group of people called navigators i think that's a great idea because you know we all need navigation you've got it in your car i know that and on your iphone watch and all that kind of stuff but we need people to navigate us through life and sometimes the decisions just look so overwhelming that we we don't know where to turn and so we just fall in this constant cycle so so what is a navigator so a navigator um ideally it's somebody who's got lived experience and by that i mean someone who said yeah i've been there i've done that I know what it's like, I know how difficult it is, and I know that you can get out from it and, and make something good. Um, people with lived experience who will sit in the a department for a couple of nights a week, patients who come in having been assaulted, it might be domestic violence, it might be gang violence, it might be anything else, it might be self-harm, and they'll say, look, can I help you? And then they'll go out into the community and they'll act as caseworkers with them and they'll say, well, is, is it an issue of housing? Is it an issue of drugs? Is it an issue of addiction? Uh, wh- whatever it might be. And then try and work with local agencies yeah. to, to, to give them the options to make good choices. It's that reachable moment, isn't it? Absolutely. You are almost in a confined position when you're in a waiting yeah. to be seen or waiting to be yeah. done. And, and yeah. it's a great opportunity because... Yeah. Uh, from a completely different scale, I, I found myself sitting in A&E on the back of a sports injury thinking, why am I here? <laughs> am I too old for this game? What, should I have really done that? Um, is it time to retire? So you do sit there and think, what am I doing with my life Yes. at that point, depending on yes. why you're there. And, and I would guess if you're there for some type of violent injury and maybe it's because of the world you're part of or this and the other, there's got to be thoughts going through your head at that point about yeah. should I really be here and can I change things around? It's like a, a liminal moment. I think, you know, if you if you believe that there is a spiritual nature to us and a physical nature to us and those are very different at times, those two touch and, and you, you know, you get a feeling or something. And it's, it's, it's being able to step into those moments and, and just say, ah, so we are receptive to change. And I think most people are. You know, I don't think... On the whole, people love living without hope. I think they want hope. They want a future. They and and you know they can have it. And it doesn't matter what our background is. Really, it doesn't matter how much poverty there is or deprivation. You know, we can choose to move forwards and move out of that. Yeah, yeah people want aspiration. Yeah, I, I rarely meet anybody that that doesn't want a better life. What what a better life looks for them is is very different for different people, um, and it might be something as simple as a new dog or. A 
home or a holiday this year or whatever. It's, it means different things to different people. But that aspiration for something else is always there. And it's what drives and motivates lots of people. Yeah. Um, just coming back to, to Cleveland and, and violent crime, and you touched on, on meeting Teresa Cave, yeah. uh, who's who's a very inspirational woman. And, yeah. and I know we, we've both spent some time with her and, and do that. What... What do you think Cleveland really needs in terms to to really combat the endemic we're seeing at the minute around knife crime? The, the answer is it probably needs all of us to work together, principally, first and foremost. I mean, this this isn't a police thing to solve. This isn't a healthcare thing to solve. This isn't a government thing to solve. And if we sit back and wait for everybody else to do something, chances are we won't get anywhere. So I think it needs all of us to be together in a room, positively trying to make that change. It needs intelligent, clever people who can lobby at those levels to say this is our situation and you know your office is fantastic at doing that and, and has been successful in doing that. It needs healthcare to come on board to say, okay, we recognize that there are inequalities. We need to address those a much wider picture. We need um, private sector organizations to say, I've got a load of money. I don't know what to do with it. I need a tax break. Let me sponsor something and, and to, to plow funds into our area for regeneration, for youth clubs, for everything else. I think we need people to believe that there is a better future and to kind of rise up from the ashes, so to speak. And so that, that's almost a responsibility on Joe Public to say, yeah, we want something different. Yeah. Um, but I think ultimately we, we just need to be coordinated in what we do to bring pride back in, in, into our area and, and help people get jobs, help people, you know, live for prosperity, um, I don't really know what else to say. You know, no, I, think, I, I, think I love ultimately that. Ultimately, we've just we've just got to get together in in, in one place and and make it all happen. And, and I see that, and I, I agree with that. Most of the area problems are, are never going to be one person's responsibility yeah. to fix. Whether that's for, from anybody from a from a politician down to a to somebody cleaning the streets or looking after ill family members at home, we we all want the same thing for our area. We all want a better area. And we'll only get that by collectively working together. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's the the podcast is is filmed, which still drives me. Uh, it still confuses me. Podcast. I listen to podcasts <laughs> in the car. People watch podcasts. Um, so you're on camera. I. It would be remiss of me to ask why a surgeon has three bandages on ah. three fingers on his left uh, hand. Yeah, these, yes. So <clears throat> I think the first thing I should say is I'm a, I'm a far better surgeon than I am a woodworker. <laughs> um, my, my daughter made some uh, candlestick holders at, at her Wisdom of the Woods Club by splitting a, a log down the center. And they're lovely, but they're really wonky. Yeah. So um, we had, a, we had a, a dinner party on Saturday night, and um, I said, let me just straighten those up for you on the tabletop planer. Uh, and I think I just stopped saying to her, watch out, this will take your fingers off. And actually, I've managed to get those candle bits done properly with all the safety stuff. And then she presented me her coasters. I said, can you do my coasters? I said, well, I don't, need, I don't really need them. She said, oh, please. Said, all right, then. And it just caught on something and pushed my hand in wow. to the, into the blades. So I, I just had visions of it, it been a slipped scalpel. Somewhere. I've never cut myself at work, ever. You've believe never it or not, I've never cut myself with a scalpel. But uh, yeah, plenty of times with tools. Great stuff. If there's one thing, I, I'm going to sort of finish on that. If there's if there's one thing you'd really like to see for our area, what do you think that would be? I, I mean, I would just love to see us be successful in changing the tide of negativity and hopelessness. 
you know, you asked me at the beginning, you know, why why I'm here, and why this area, and I, I I don't know, and I think I'll probably look back in twenty years time, and I might have an answer, or I yeah. might not. There is something about this place, this area, that gives me excitement. You know, yeah. we can make a difference. We can make a change. And and maybe if we try and aim for the stars, we won't get there. But if we could just turn up to work every day, if we can be the parents and the friends that we can with, with hope in our hearts, you know, actually some love for each other as well. And that's not that kind of sloppy stuff. Yeah. But genuine humanity stuff, if we could take pride in our area and, and start to, to turn it around, that, that's what I would love to see. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for being my third guest on Coffee with the Commissioner. Thank you very much. Um, hopefully you've all enjoyed that. Barney's a brilliant surgeon. Barnabas is a brilliant <laughs> surgeon. Um, with, with any luck, nobody listening to this podcast will ever have to meet him in a professional capacity. True. Because um, that's really not what we want. Um, but he, I do want to pay tribute to him because he has been instrumental in, in the work the Office of the Police and Crown Commission has done in bringing a violence reduction unit to Teesside. And, and I don't think we'd have managed to squeeze that over the line in the way we did without professionals um, like yourself coming forward in the way we did. And then the work you've done since in introducing us to the, to the MAV team up in Scotland, looking at the a navigators and how we work them and the, the work I know you continue to do with my team. So yeah. I just want to say thank you for that. Um, it will make a difference and we'll see you all again soon. Thank you very much.